Well, hey there. My name's Greg. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Chase Oaks, and I'm so glad I get to be with you this weekend, wherever you happen to be right now, whatever Chase Oaks campus you're at, or if you're joining us online right now. I'm so glad that we all get to be together here for a really important topic here in the middle of our Unexpected Jesus series. This weekend, we're going to talk about how Jesus um, interacted with and how he felt about religion. And I got to say um, here at the very outset, when we talk about the religion that's based, you know, the, the religion that claims the name of Christ, Christianity, I have to say that as a pastor, there's probably nothing else in the world that causes me more embarrassment than goofy Christianity. You know, when you kind of see it out in the wild and it just sort of makes you cringe, you know, um, I... Um, when I was uh, several years ago, when my older daughters were younger, like kind of middle school age, my my wife periodically would uh, like dance in public just to embarrass them. Um, and they, they were like mortified, you know, and there's, oh, my gosh, like, mom, mom, you know, and that's how I feel sometimes when I see this like Christianity, this is like really, really strange or, or whatever. It's just like I looked up and saw my mom dancing in the grocery store. You know, it's just like so embarrassing. You know what I'm talking about? Like you see, uh, you know, some representation of Christianity that you feel like doesn't represent Christ at all. Or you see like some, you know, supposed sort of Christian leader on TV and it makes you ask, are you sure we're part of the same family? Um, or you or you drive up next to some church that is just trying really hard to be so clever with their church sign, you know, and you kind of sink down lower. It says, I do not know those people. Uh, in fact, I'm going to show you three church signs. And I'm going to have you then vote as to which sign as to which sign you like the best. The first one, prevent truth decay. Brush up on your Bible. What do you think? Okay. How about this next one? I was addicted to the hokey pokey, but I turned myself around. <laughs> or, how about, or how about this one? Sin burn is prevented by sunscreen. Oh, that is just awful. That is awful. All right, so we got to vote here. What, who do you like? Uh, prevent truth decay. Brush up on your Bible. Do you like that one the best? Uh, that's kind of lame. All right. Um, I was addicted to the hokey pokey, but I turned myself around. Okay. You people are terrible. You should not be laughing at that. This is not good humor. Um, Sin burn is prevented by sunscreen. Okay. We might have a winner. Well, I'm the communications pastor. Maybe you'll see that on the Chase Oak sign. No, you will not see that on the Chase Oak sign. Christianity can be a really, really strange thing. And... You know, in the series, we're trying to peel back some of the layers, get a fresh look at Jesus. And one of the things that we're going to see this weekend, and one thing that might be surprising to some of us this weekend, is that Jesus wasn't all that excited about religion. At least the religion as defined by pretty much every religious person or religious leader in his day. And in, in, in um, in reading Jesus in the New Testament and reading about Jesus in the New Testament, it does make me wonder, like all like joking aside, it does make me wonder what Jesus would think or what Jesus does think about contemporary Christianity. You know... There's a there's kind of a principle or a saying in uh, in business and in sales that sometimes you just got to throw the skunk on the table. You know, like if you're if you're going to deal with a problem, sometimes you just got to name it, throw the skunk on the table and deal with it. So I'm going to name it. 
that when we read Jesus in the New Testament, often it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to match at all the religion that claims his name 2000 years later. You know, um, you know, if we're, if we're just going to be real honest, the church and not like Chase Oaks Church, but like the broader church, the representation of Christianity in the world, the church um, has gotten it wrong a lot. This next year, we will mark the 100-year anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, uh, which gave women the right to vote here in America. It was actually it was crafted and signed in, in 1919, and then it became constitutional in 1920. And back in that day, there were a lot of Christian leaders, and there were churches that were fighting for women's rights. Uh, but by and large, the consensus view among conservative churches in the South was opposition to the 19th Amendment, for primarily for religious reasons. Now, I am uh, I'm married, I have a wife, and I have three daughters. And so this kind of hits home to me a little bit. And it's weird to think that if we were alive back then and we were part of the church, part of a church community, that the prevailing wisdom of the time, the kind of the winds of Christianity, the consensus view of Christianity would be opposition to a woman's right to vote. And that is just crazy to me. And those of you who know history know that, you know, opposition to the 19th Amendment is just kind of the tip of the iceberg and actually pretty far from the worst examples. That there is a long list of things that that kind of the prevailing wisdom of Christianity and the church has gotten wrong historically. And in my own life, there have been multiple times when I have wondered if my Christianity is making is actually making me more like Christ. So the question of the weekend is. How is it possible that a person who wants to follow Jesus or a church that wants to follow Jesus or an entire generation of Christianity that claims to follow Jesus can end up looking nothing like Jesus? Uh, This is a great big topic, uh, but I think that the, the way to begin this conversation is to, as best we can, uh, Peel back the layers, take a fresh look at Jesus and how he interacted with this whole concept of religion. That when there was a fork in the road uh, between religion and Jesus, what did Jesus do that religious people didn't? And the first thing that we will see is that while Jesus did indeed uh, value religious standards and, and moral standards, he nevertheless prioritized compassion. Um, when religion takes the most important, uh, when, when religion becomes the most important thing in our lives, it often does so at the expense of compassion, as counterintuitive as that sounds. And so when you think of like the very worst phrases in relation to religion, things like um, holy war or honor killing or something like that, those are just the extreme examples of what can happen when the protection of a religion or the, um, the advancement of a religion within a culture becomes the most important thing, or just following the rules and checking off religious boxes become the most important thing. Usually that happens at the expense of compassion. And that tension between, uh, between religious sort of purity and compassion for individuals, that was, a, that was a tension that Jesus faced over and over in his ministry. In one area that he faced that uh, was around uh, what Jesus would do on the Sabbath. So he would sort of butt heads with religious leaders over the Sabbath over and over again. 
You see, the Sabbath, that was a command in Scripture in the Old Testament that God commanded his people to set aside one day of the week and, and keep it holy to him. Um, and they were not supposed to work. And, and certainly it was beneficial to them to have a day of rest. But even more importantly, it was a distinguishing mark of the people of God um, in, in sort of in sight of all of the surrounding cultures that they would, by faith, um, not work one day a week and by faith, trusting that God was going to take care of them, that God was uh, God was their provider. And so if you lived in the Old Testament or if you lived in Jesus's time and you cared about God at all. You would have cared about the Sabbath. There's no way to get around that. It was this was a big deal for them. And you would have wondered, so what is, what is actually okay to do on the Sabbath and what's not okay and, and, and what, is, what constitutes work and what doesn't? And so the religious leaders in Jesus' day um, endeavored to answer those questions, to say, okay, you can do this, da 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 you can't do these things, and they set up all of these rules. And then Jesus came and he broke all of the rules. And he would do things like heal on the Sabbath, which looked an awful lot like work to them. And they would say, you can't do that. And it seemed like um, he was disregarding the law, disregarding the religion. In one uh, incident, uh, on the Sabbath, he was, Jesus was walking with his disciples uh, in a field, and his disciples reached down and they picked some of the grain. And they most likely kind of rubbed it in their hands to kind of loosen the, the chaff and maybe blow the chaff off. And then they popped the grain into their mouth to give themselves a little bit of a snack and something to chew on as they walk along. And the religious leaders see this and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't do that. That's harvesting. That's work. You can't work on the Sabbath. And Jesus gives them two responses. Look at what Jesus says. He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now, this is a strange story for Jesus to be telling at, at, at this moment. David and his companions go into the tabernacle. They eat the consecrated bread by religious law set aside kind of for the livelihood of the priests. I mean, this was set aside for the priests. It was unlawful for them to do this. But, Jesus, um, but, but David walks in with his companions and they eat um, and he gives it to his companions. And Jesus tells the story like it was a completely reasonable thing for David to do. Why? Well, because they were hungry and they were in need. And then Jesus gives a second response. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's not like God was up in heaven and said, oh, I have all of these great rules, all of these great laws. Now I need to create people to keep them. He's, he created people and then he created the law and he created uh, these he created laws primarily for their for their health and for their benefit. It was always about people. It was not about obedience. A couple weeks ago, I was um, I was on a retreat up in or not up down uh, at the coast in, at the, in the Gulf uh, on retreat with a few other pastors here from Chase Oaks. And uh, on one of the evenings, we kind of did this touristy thing. We went out on this tour boat that you know would take people out to see dolphins. And uh, when we sort of found our seats and where we we're going to sit, um, there was on the seat. 
uh, left there by someone previous, um, a coin. Someone had left a coin on the seat. And my first thought was, you know, hot dog, you know, free money. And then um, I feel it, and it's kind of disappointing because it's light. It's made out of plastic. And, and then I read it, and it's got the Ten Commandments on it. And I think, what a letdown, you know? <laughs> And, you know, and I have no doubt that the person who left this for someone to find had the best of intentions, but I do wonder what it was they were hoping to accomplish with this. Other than to make someone who picks it up and takes it later feel guilty because of the you shall not steal one, you know, (laughs) command. What was the message they were trying to send? I mean, I don't know, but the message that I took is actually not an uncommon one. It's a belief that that what God desires most in the world is that human beings would just learn how to behave themselves. But even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament before Jesus came, it was clear that God's highest desire was not uh, us checking off all of the religious boxes and obeying completely. It was not all about following the rules. See, God told his people how he wanted them to love one another and how he wanted them to care for the needs of the poor and take care of those who are vulnerable in their in their society and in their culture and even um, aliens and foreigners that came in, like how he wanted them to live. And then he also gave this whole religious law, this whole sacrificial system of all these different sacrifices for when they sinned against God or sinned against people. And there were different sacrifices for different offenses. And those sacrifices were also to be sort of this visceral, kind of messy, bloody sort of um, symbol of the seriousness of all of this. And then after multiple generations of that, of that religion, look at what, um, look at what God says in Isaiah chapter 1. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. To which they could respond, hey, wait a minute, God, aren't you the one who told us to, make, to do these sacrifices? Isn't this the religion that you set up for us? To which God would say, no, I told you to love people. And I told you to care for those who were in need. Look at, look at what God continues to say here. He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. And then he defines it. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. You see, they thought that following all the religious rules and checking all the religious boxes was more important than them caring for those who were in need. And God finally says, I am fed up with that. I want you to love people. I want you to, I want you to be mindful of and take care of those who are vulnerable in your society and in, and in your culture. And I want you to stop bringing me so many dead animals. They made it about religion And they lost compassion along the way. Jesus was asked, what is the first and greatest commandment in the Bible? And uh, and he actually gave uh, two responses. He says, "I'll, I'll give you two. He said, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. And then he goes on to explain all of the law and the prophets hang on those two commands, which means everything in our Bible leads up to those two principles, love God and love people. Which means if we're reading the Bible and it's not leading us to worship and compassion, we're probably reading it wrong. You see, God prioritized, or Jesus prioritized compassion because for Jesus, people mattered most. Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Father, and one of the things that we see you know, in glaring truth is that God's highest value, highest desire for us is not behavior modification. His highest desire for us is relationship. God the Father did not send God the Son to die in a divine act of self-sacrifice just so we could now at long last, you know, tow a religious party line and finally behave ourselves. He did so to break down the barrier of the dividing wall between us and him so that we could now at long last know him and have a relationship with him. It was always about people. Look at this next um, Look at this next passage. This is in the, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse 2. At dawn, he, meaning Jesus, appeared again at the temple courts where all of the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Okay, we're going to pick that up here in just a second. But, this, but the law says that this woman uh, was to be stoned. Now, the purpose of that law, when, when the people are coming out of the wilderness and into the promised land and they're surrounded by all these different cultures and God gave all of these different laws, the purpose of that law was to root out a, a sort of culture of, of, of unfaithfulness and to create a people of fidelity and faithfulness and distinction. It was not, in a, it was not an excuse to stone people. But these guys are using this woman as a pawn in their own theological debate. It's like a game to them, and that is not what the law was for. And so Jesus hears this accusation, and then, um, then he starts writing on the ground. And we think, what in the world is he doing? And the answer is, we have no idea what he was doing. Um, there's no lack of speculation when you read commentators like, what is Jesus writing? Why is he writing on the ground? We're, we're not given any answers to that. We don't know why he's doing that. That's a good question to ask him someday. Um, but more interesting to me than what he is doing as he's looking at the ground um, is to think about what he isn't doing while he's looking at the ground. He isn't looking at her. Now think about this. She was caught in the act of adultery. Now, conspicuously absent is the person she was committed, committing adultery with. I mean, it does take two, after all. 
And the disgusting hypocrisy of that in, in a male-dominated culture that only she would be brought and accused. I mean, that is, a, that is another sermon for another day. But be that as it may, she was caught in the act of adultery. I think it is very possible that she is not properly clothed. She is dragged all the way to the Temple Mount. She is brought before a holy man who's teaching a crowd of people. She is put on display. And I can just sort of imagine her using whatever she has to cover herself, to maybe cover her face. And wanting in that moment nothing more in the world than just hide in a corner so that no one could see her. And he does not add to her shame by being one of the gawkers. And out of respect, he diverts his eyes. Then he prioritizes compassion by choosing her over enforcement. And he comes to her defense and he shames her, her, her accusers until all of her accusers walk away one by one. Then he looks at her. And we can pick up the story there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. She was guilty, and Jesus says, I don't condemn you. He doesn't say, Oh, you're fine. We all have different paths, we all have different truths. He says, No, you're guilty. But I don't condemn you. And that is so hard for us to sort of wrap our minds around. Because it seems like for us, it either has to be, oh, you're fine, you're good, you know, no harm, no foul, you're you're fine. Or it is, you're guilty and you deserve punishment. And Jesus says, no, you're guilty, but I don't condemn you. I will find another way. I'm going to break my own rules and we will find another way. Because for Jesus, it was not about people learning how to behave. It was about people coming to the end of themselves and accepting a grace that that they never could never earn, that they could not deserve. And by accepting that grace, sinners would become the people of God. And not through obedience, but simply by faith. And it is um, important, though, for us to note that they're at the end of that passage. Um, He does say, uh, go now and leave your life of sin. He does speak truth into her life. But you can tell, but, but it's clear that he's not just calling her to a moral code. I mean, he's already, I mean, she's hurting herself. And God has something better for her. And, and Jesus has already demonstrated that he is for her that uh, he wants what's best for her, that he has no condemnation for her, that that he has already lavished upon her love and grace. Which brings me to sort of the next uh, observation of Jesus' interaction with religion, that Jesus does, throughout the Gospels, speak truth, sometimes difficult, hard truth. And he does call people to God's better way. But in his teaching and in his life, he nevertheless demonstrates that love and grace are the things that actually change people. And his self-sacrifice on the cross is the ultimate example of that. 
We don't know the, the end of this story of this woman. We don't know if she left her destructive life and, and followed a healthier path. We, we don't know. If she did, if she did experience inner transformation, it would not have been because she was called out on her sin. It would be because she experienced outrageous, crazy love and scandalous grace. Because love and grace have the power to change us from the inside out. And this, this whole thing, this becomes tricky for us as Christians. Because we are supposed to be, and we are called to be, people of both grace and truth. Be people that demonstrate God's grace and also speak the truth. And this story is actually, a, actually gives us a good picture of Jesus dealing with both of those things. And we can learn some things from Jesus on this. And the first thing that we learn is that the order matters. Grace has to come first. And the second thing that we learn is, well, it's mostly grace. Jesus doesn't speak truth into her life until he, are, until he, he has already um, demonstrated, um, given her dignity and respect. He's already uh, put himself on the line to defend her, to protect her, to send her accusers away. He's already communicated that there is no condemnation for her. She is guilty, but she already feels safe and loved and protected and valued. This story is 90% love and grace because that is where the power is. I wonder sometimes... Um, as I look at the Christian community kind of at large, or as I survey church history, I wonder sometimes if we are a people that truly believe that love and grace is where the power is. Because it seems like we, it's, it's, we act like we also need to win. Like we need to impose our will on our culture to get more and more people to follow the rules as if we believed that what brings God the most glory is if humans would just learn to behave themselves. And I wonder sometimes, and I'm probably on thin ice on this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I wonder sometimes when the Christian community sort of um, engages in sort of a culture war mentality, I wonder what it is we're hoping to win. You see, and maybe I'm in the minority on this, but I don't actually think we're in a culture war. Not with other people, at least. Every person that we disagree with is a victim of the fall, just like we are. Paul would later say, there is a battle going on in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm, but it is not against flesh and blood. Every other person we interact with is on our side of that battle line. We're not fighting against people. And culture is just the context for us to demonstrate crazy love and scandalous grace because we have firsthand experience of the, of the power of love and grace to change the human heart. We have good news. And we are the last people on the planet that should be looking down our noses in condemnation of somebody else. You know, there, there is a saying that sometimes Christians will use um, in revolving around how many of us within Christendom believe um, God would have us respond to people that 
um, we don't agree with or the people that live differently than we do or something like that. And sometimes, and maybe you've heard the saying that sometimes we feel like what God wants for us to do is love the sinner, hate the sin. Maybe you've seen that or heard that phrase before. The problem that I have with this is that other than Jesus, I've never seen anybody actually do this well. And so I'm going to advocate that we maybe adopt a different saying. Instead of love the sin or hate the sin, how about love the sin or hate your own sin? If we were to set our focus on love and grace and then also set our focus on uh, adopting God's better way in our own life and our own relationships, there is the, the potential that we could be known as not only the most loving and gracious people on the planet, but we'd be known as, a, as people who figured a few things out about purpose and joy and peace and relationships and all those things. And maybe people would actually want to know what we had to say. Wouldn't that be something? You know, the, the group of people that uh, Jesus had the most trouble with were called the Pharisees. They were one of a few different religious leadership groups during that time, but they were kind of a, a, a pretty important group. And uh, they were kind of the keepers of the law and the customs and all of those things. They were the group that helped people um, understand uh, what, it, what it was to look like to follow God in, in practical everyday life. This is okay to do this. It's not okay to do that. Um, and we have to know that those people did not become Pharisees because they were jerks. They became Pharisees because they cared about the Bible. And they cared about obedience. But unlike Jesus, they prioritized enforcement over compassion. And they valued the rules more than they valued people. And they thought truth was more powerful than grace. And I can tell you, you know, as a, as a pastor, you know, I've been in ministry my entire adult life. And I can tell you, I know how easy it is to slip and become an accidental Pharisee. Because I also care about the Bible and about obedience. But I can tell you that the, that the moments of biggest, my biggest regrets in ministry, my biggest regrets as a parent have been seasons when I've been so sure of right and wrong and I've seized on opportunities to enforce the rules and I have not looked for opportunities to demonstrate grace and demonstrate love. And in those seasons, I ended up looking nothing like Jesus. So, I think, you know, I, I recognize and realize that not everybody within the sound of my voice is a Christ follower. And you might be here just sort of checking out Christianity, and this is the place to be. And we're so glad that you're here. But I also recognize that probably most of the people within the sound of my voice do claim Christianity and want to follow Jesus. But I do think that it is healthy every once in a while um, for us to assess and ask ourselves the question as to whether or not we're on the right path. And ask ourselves the question, if our Christianity is actually making us more like Christ. Wherever we're coming from, um, some of us are over here. We're kind of just not that good at being good. 
And others of us are way on the other side and we're actually more prone to becoming an accidental Pharisee. Regardless, it is good to take a fresh look at Jesus and to, and to remember that as it relates to religion, um, Jesus' call isn't follow the rules. It's follow me. And there's a difference. It's sometimes good to remember that Jesus wasn't a Christian. He never asked someone, he never asked people to become Christians. He never built a church. He never took an offering. He never wrote a theological treatise. Um, he never wore religious garments. He didn't incorporate for tax purposes. You know, he just invited people to follow him. And, you know, some of the earliest followers were uh, fishermen who, for whatever reason, they thought that they found that that or they thought that this 30-year-old carpenter turned rabbi had something that they wanted, and so they dropped their nets and they followed. And it probably never occurred to them that they were becoming Christians or that they were taking on a whole new sort of religious system. And then he offered the invitation to Matthew, the tax collector. And in essence saying, Matthew, you can be part of the club. You can be my, one of my disciples. And all that I have, you could have access to. Follow me. And that invitation was made to Matthew before he ever confessed any of his sins, before he ever gave back all the money he extorted from his own people as a tax collector, before he ever took on a whole religious system. He was just following a person. And that personal invitation to follow Jesus is the cornerstone and the foundation of the Christian faith. And it's just not supposed to be more complicated than that. Now, sometimes Jesus would sort of clarify that invitation and say, repent and follow me. And it's unfortunate that we've turned repent or repentance into this really heavy, condemning sort of religious word. Because all repent means is stop, turn, and go a new direction. Like the hokey pokey, you've got to turn yourself around. <laughs> see what I did there? I brought us all the way back to the introduction. Did you see that? I'm thinking. I'm thinking. That was terrible. That's terrible. Jesus says, I'm going this way. It seems like you're going this way. Stop, turn, and follow me. The Bible says, apart from God, we are broken, and we are blind, and we are lost, and we are hungry, and we are thirsty, and we um, are judgmental, and we are envious, and we're violent, and we are all of these things. And then Jesus shows up with good news and says, you can turn around now. As we stumble in the darkness, he says, I am the light of the world. I can help you. Follow me. As we strive in this life to find something that truly satisfies, he says, I am the bread of life. I can sustain you. Follow me. As we wander in the wilderness like sheep, he says, I am the good shepherd. I can guide you. Follow me. Stop, turn and follow me. Because my path is a path where wounds don't have to just sort of be politely covered up. My path is a path where wounds are healed. My path is, is, is not a path where, where mistakes have to be excused or just ignored. My path is a path where mistakes are forgiven. My path is a path where, where value and worth don't have to be earned or, or fought for or purchased. My path is a path where worth and value are given freely by a loving father. 
Jesus's call to repentance is not a call for us to like try harder to finally get this religion thing right and really mean it this time. It's a call for us to stop and to turn and in faith find Jesus to be the source of wisdom and power and sustenance and healing and joy and purpose and life. Christianity is not, or at least it shouldn't be, any more complicated than just making a life out of that. We all... um, face multiple forks in the road. And we have decisions that we have to make on which way are we going to go to find joy, to find purpose, to find life. Um, And we have to recognize that religion does have the power to take us off track and to really mess with our thinking. And so let me urge you, when you see the prevailing winds of Christianity going one way, but Jesus is going another, please follow Jesus every single time because it is all, always about him. And when there is a fork in the road between religion and Jesus, it might require prioritizing compassion, valuing people, recognizing that love and grace is where the power is. And remembering that Christianity is not a command to follow the rules. It's an invitation to follow a person. In just a moment, we are um, we're going to take communion in all of our campuses. And so whatever campus you're at right now, if you're part of the band, um, you can make your way to the stage. Uh, if you're... One of the, if you're on one of the teams that, that serves communion uh, for us, thank you for doing that. You can sort of make your way and start making preparations for that. If you're online right now and you happen to be close enough to the kitchen <laughs> to uh, go grab some bread and something to drink, do so. Do so now so we can take communion together. Jesus gave us the ordinance of communion as a remembrance because he knows how prone we are to forget. He says, do this whenever you eat this bread, drink this cup. Do this in remembrance of me. He knows how prone we are to make all of this about everything else but him. And so in just a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to turn our attention back to the meaning of it all. That it is not about what we do and what we don't do. It is about what Jesus has already done and what he continues to do for us. That is our story that we get to celebrate. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess before you and we acknowledge that we are prone to um, going off track a lot and for a lot of different reasons. And so we thank you for the opportunity we have now to focus our attention back to our Savior, our hope, our meaning, the source of wisdom and power and strength and healing. Father, it is all about your son. And we thank you for giving him for us. We thank you that through him we have access to you. And through communion now, we celebrate and we turn our attention toward him. 
And it's in his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.